Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. Thank you all for uh, being here. And uh, as I mentioned before, my name is Taylor Leachman. Um, the pastor here, and um, we uh, finished a sermon series last week on uh, the the very beginning of the book of Genesis, and um, and we're starting a new sermon series uh, called the Seven Last Words of Jesus, um, the seven different sayings uh, that he uttered that are recorded in the Gospels from the cross, um, and so we're going to spend the season of Lent meditating on. The cross of Christ, right? Why was Jesus crucified? Um, What did he say? Uh, And and what did he pray from the cross? And ultimately, what does that mean about what uh, we receive in salvation from him? Um, And so we're beginning today with with Luke chapter 23, um, where Jesus prays to God the Father. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, right? Right? and and I, I realized this the other day, you know, uh, we do a lot of liturgical elements and there's a lot of rhythmic uh, parts that if you're new to Advent, you're like, All right, well, that's different. I don't know why they're doing that. One of them that you probably have picked up on is that after we read the scripture, we always pray. Um, and why is that? Right? Why are we always pray right after we read the Bible during this, this time of the sermon? And the answer um, is that we believe that we are utterly dependent upon God. We're utterly dependent upon Him for life, but we're also utterly dependent upon Him for understanding. So we pray that as we read God's words to us, that He would, by His Holy Spirit, give us that understanding. And so that's what we're doing. Um, it, it, it may feel a little bit weird. It may feel a little bit um, like, you know, uh, sort of too rote. Um, but we're doing it each and every week because we remember that He uh, is the one who grants us that understanding. So would you all pray with me? Um, oh, sorry, so let's read Luke chapter 23, verses 32 to 38. And then we'll pray after I I read it for us. Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, said, This is the king of the Jews. This is the gospel of the Lord. Lord Would you all pray with me? Father, we do pray, Lord, that the, um, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts, that these things would be pleasing in your sight, and that by your Spirit you would give us that understanding that we need um, to, to be changed as we consider your word together. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, a week or two ago, um, my wife Julianne and I were invited to go to uh, sort of a fundraising banquet um, uh, to raise money for a ministry that provides uh, a Christian ministry that provides health care for the um, uninsured. It's free health care for the uninsured and that ministers to them um, uh, kind of through this process. It was a really wonderful evening and got to hear a little bit more about uh, about this ministry. And we'll probably talk more about it at some point here with our Advent family as well. But a part of the fundraiser was that they had an auction. Um, and so we're sitting at the table, all kinds of things were auctioned off, a, a skeet shooting opportunity, some uh, Houston Astros tickets were auctioned off, and then um, come these beautiful diamond earrings that were in the shape of a cross, and um, I perhaps was not in the right frame of mind with the right heart attitude at that particular moment, and I leaned over to Juliana and I said, you know, like the ones that Jesus would have worn. Um, and um, so <laughs> man, I, I was a little sarcastic at that point. But and, and here's my point. A nice pair of earrings is not wrong to have or to bid on. Uh, but my joke was more trying to get at the fact um, that it is a little bit strange that we have turned a non-religious form of execution into jewelry. Right? I, I think the point um, is that we have become far too familiar with the cross. Right? We, and perhaps we've even too romanticized it as well. Because crucifixion was absolutely not religious in any form during the Roman Empire, or the reign of the Roman Empire. Its connotation was that uh, it was for the worst of society. Um, for those who had done the worst. Or those who were not worthy to remain, not only not worthy to remain alive, um, but those who needed to be shamed and turned into a public example, right? They were the ones that were crucified. Think, think terrorists. Think serial killers. Think those that we probably wouldn't lose a wink of sleep if we found out that they were crucified, right? Um, and that they were executed, Crucifixion was so horrendous because it was intended to truly and finally humiliate the criminal, right? There's a couple of different ways in which that humiliation took form. First was that it was public, right? In in our society, executions are typically done privately, right? Behind closed doors, behind even a, a partition that keeps the execution part from the family members that may be watching or the journalists or uh, the legal representatives. But in the Roman Empire, the, yes, some executions were private, um, but many were meant to be public spectacle. Um, but so an example of one of the private type of executions that was that, you know, if you were a Roman citizen, uh, you had the privilege, if you committed uh, an atrocious crime, of being uh, beheaded in more of a kind of a private area that was actually seen as, as a more uh, a dignified way to go out. But crucifixion was designed to be public, right? Those who hung from the cross were placed alongside of roads, um, on top of hills, and public gathering spaces. So we see here in our passage, it's mentioned that Jesus is taken to a place that is regularly referred to as the skull, 
right? And it's most like most scholars believe that it's referred to as the skull because of the number of deaths that took place there. It was a very public form and place of execution at that place. And not only that, but often kind of mass crucifixions were held at popular gathering times throughout the year. So sort of like getting the most bang for your buck, um, a greater number of spectators to be able to be there to witness these crucifixions. And so Jesus' crucifixion would have been during the time of the Passover celebration, a time when thousands and thousands of Jews who were dispersed throughout the Roman Empire would have come into Jerusalem at this point. So the audience would have been far larger than it was normally. Right? These crucifixions were made public because they were intended to deter criminal activity and criminal action throughout the empire. Right? You'd better not be thinking of overturning Rome or this could happen to you. Right? Or, or slave or servant, you better not think about overturning or, uh, or harming your master or this could happen to you. It was meant to publicly dissuade. So humiliating was intended to be public. Or sorry, the cross was intended to be public and that was its humiliating factor. But not only that, it was humiliating because you were exposed. The criminals on the cross would have been stripped bare before all passers-by. Right? There was nothing to hide. You were on and your body was on full display. Right? Intended to humiliate the criminal even further as the private parts, those parts that we uh, are, are often most shame-filled about are made public. And because crucified people were were naked before the watchers by, that also meant that every bodily function was public as well. All right, there was absolutely no dignity in this form of death. And considering the torturous pain and fear that they would have uh, experienced, it is likely that none of the crucified people would have been able to remain in control of their bodily functions. And yet further... Their emotions were laid bare. The fear, the anger, the sadness of all of it would have been laid before the crowds because who can maintain emotional stability when death is staring you in the face, when pain is all that you feel, when the crowd that comes by has turned against you or is treating you as subhuman, right? The cross should shock us. And yet this is the death that Jesus suffered. It is on the cross, this place of torture and humiliation that we see our Lord publicly on display, uttering final words. And here in Luke, uttering these final words where he says, Lord, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Right. And so let's look at these words in two parts. I want to first look at what he is saying when he says that they know not. And then secondly, what it means that he, he says, let's forgive them. So first, no not. Right? I, I remember <clears throat> being incredibly insulted when I first learned what the word sophomore meant. Um, I, I happened to be a sophomore at the time. Uh, and in a sermon, the pastor used it as an example and sort of an illustration of how we're all foolish at times. Right? The word sophomore means wise fool. Um, so Izzy and JJ, I'm sorry, uh, if you're hearing this for the first time, um, and other sophomores who may be in here, 
Um, but, but sophomore means wise fool. It's a compounded Greek word where the word sophist, right, um, the, the root of the word sophisticated, which means wise, um, is, is compounded with the word moros, right, which means foolish. It's where we get the word moron, right, from. And those are put together. And so a sophomore is a wise fool. But why? Why do we refer to second-year students as sophomores, as wise fools? Well, a sophomore has had a year's worth of experience, so they know some of the ropes, but they don't know all of them, right? Um, they have some experience, but they don't have enough experience to, to realize just how much more there is to know. So they're wise in some things, and they're foolish in many others, but their foolishness is compounded in that they don't know what they don't know, right? They think they are now wise. And here's the point. We are all sophomores in life. We all believe that we are wise and that we have experienced the world, but apart from God, we are fools, thinking that we are wise, thinking that we know what there is to know, thinking that we have the right and good answers to life's problems and that we have everything figured out. And yet we are still just sophomores, wise fools who've forgotten um, that there is so, so much that we don't know, right? And so Jesus from the cross, from that place of torture and humiliation, is talking to Pilate who has sentenced him, right? He's talking to the soldiers who are crucifying him and to the crowds who are mocking him and they're not sure what to think about him, right? These are the wise fools that Jesus is referring to here when he says they know not what they're doing, right? Think about the context here, right? This isn't just sort of a parent patiently enduring a lecture from a young teenager who's learned something just briefly about the American economy and they have it all figured out. Or uh, a, a, a young person who's decided that I'm now vegan and is trying to tell you all about the vegan diet, right? Um, this is the God of the universe patiently submitting to a wrongful execution and conviction through a slow, torturous, and humiliating death. And so the question is, and the question that we should ask is, what do they not know, right? Well, first, they don't know what salvation is, right? Believing that true freedom uh, and hope comes kind of from overthrowing this Roman government, this Roman occupation and oppressive government. They're thinking, this is where my hope lies, Right? And we have 2,000 years of hindsight to look back and say, well, that was a foolish hope. Because even when Rome died, that didn't do much of anything for the sake of Europe or the sake of, uh, of, of Israel. Right? Salvation, we often believe, is in, is in my candidate or my party. Right? It may not just be in overthrowing the government, uh, the Roman Empire. It may be in a change of this government. And we identify with them in that way. That is my salvation. Or my salvation will come when my candidate is able to do X, Y, or Z for the church or for the country. Right? Um, if that could be true, or if that were true, and our hope is in kind of a, a new government or a new candidate then why does that hope never last when they come in? Right? It's like the satiation of a sugar packet. It feels good for about a second, and then we're left wanting more, right? 
But what else do they not know? They don't know who Jesus is, right? They're ignorant about his divinity. Believing him to be just a man, they mock him and belittle him. They know, they know not that they are mocking, belittling, and torturing God himself. They don't realize that they are crucifying their creator. They're ignorant about Jesus' messiahship. Believing themselves to be wise, they think, you know, of course, Right, The Messiah, the one who would come, the anointed one, would come like a conquering king with, with a big sword and, and war-conquering armies. Right? He would look like the kings of the surrounding nations. Right? How could this guy, this suffering teacher here from the boonies, right, from Nazareth, how could this dude be the Messiah? In their minds, he couldn't. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, they said. They mocked, never believing that he actually was or that he actually could be the Messiah. They're ignorant about his kingship. Right? This is the king of the Jews, they mocked, with the sign that was above him on the cross. Right? A servant, um, a weakling king for a weakling people, they must have been thinking. Right? He obviously has no real authority because he can't even get himself out of this situation. How could he offer anyone else salvation if he can't save himself? They don't know. Right? And yet these are the ones who Jesus came to save. He comes to save those of us who don't know. He comes to save those of us who, like Paul says in the book of Romans, he says that we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Those sophomores, those wise fools who think that they are wise yet know nothing of God. That is our Savior. Our Savior who so identifies with sinners that he he sat between uh, two of them on the cross, submitting himself to, to a death and execution that they actually deserved by Roman law. He identifies himself with those kinds of sinners. This is our Savior who comes to forgive those who have no knowledge of him. And so let's look at that second part. What does it mean when he says, forgive? Well, Jesus began his public ministry um, with what has been known as the Sermon on the Mount. Y'all have probably heard these things. And and Will uh, McKee, who was up earlier, uh, talked to us from that sermon on the Ash Wednesday service for those of y'all who were able to be there. Um, and, and in that sermon, Jesus says these amazing things, these almost ridiculous sounding things to us, things like uh, that the mourning, those who are mourning will be blessed because ultimately they'll be comforted, um, that the meek will inherit the earth, right? And then he says something so counterintuitive to our minds, to our sophomoric minds. In Luke 6, verses 27 to 28, he says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. That is not what we do, right? Um, 
You know, I, I don't feel that way when my, my, you know, enemy on the road cuts me off. Um, I absolutely do not slow down and pray uh, a blessing upon that person, right? Um, I, I don't think when another kid uh, bullies one of mine, I don't think, you know what, I need to pray for that child and bless them. Um, I, I think typically I want to punch that toddler or that child in the face, right? Um, did the Hatfields look at the McCoys and say, you know what, I forgive you. Why don't you come over for dinner and a picnic and we're just going to chill together? Right? Are, are the Palestinians looking to the Israelis right now saying, I would gladly pray for you and bless you? Are Dodger fans praying for and blessing 2017 Houston Astros? Right? When we have been wronged, we want to take that wrong back out on them. We want to hurt them as they've hurt us. We want to get rid of them and their threat, right? To, to, to obliterate them, so to speak. And yet Jesus tells us that we're supposed to love them, bless them, and pray for them. And while that sounds absurd to us, that is exactly what Jesus is doing here. He not only preached it, he is living it. Our crucified Savior surrounded by enemies who know not who he is, who know not what they are doing. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them though they hate me, though they abuse me, though they curse me. Forgive them though they walk by and think nothing of me. Forgive them even though some of those who loved me and followed me have now betrayed me and left me. Forgive them though they are killing me. Right? Father, forgive them. Despite our foolishness, right? Despite the fact that we often exchange God's truth for a lie, despite the fact that we don't love God with our whole heart, or that we might prefer to give him up for a few pieces of silver, or for a political candidate that might bring things that we might want, or for some kind of salvation that might bring a bit of comfort to us right here and right now, but be gone in the next. Right? Despite all of that foolishness, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. And that is good news. That is the good news of Jesus Christ that we often talk about here at Advent. We at Advent are, are remind, try and remind ourselves each week that our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ. This is that grace that we're talking about embracing. Paul, in that letter to the Romans, says in chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, he says, because while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Right? For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a, a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the love and the grace that Jesus has for us, that while we were enemies of him, Christ died for us. Christ forgave us. Christ embraces us. He asks that we place our faith and our hope in Him, that we give Him our life, our all. Because our life apart from Him, and this is something that we're going to sing at the end of our service together, our life apart from Him is our shame laid before Him. Yet it is covered by His shame. Our sinful self, our only shame, 
But our glory is his cross. Our glory is what he has done for us. And so let me conclude with this. On our own, um, we'll never love our enemies. We'll never pray for them. Uh, We'll never forgive them. On our own, we may not even uh, believe that our enemies deserve forgiveness, prayer, or blessing. Um, Yet the power of Christ at work in us reminds us that we were once his enemies. And yet by his grace that is so um, counterintuitive to our sophomoric minds, right? by his grace he has taken us and made uh, what, who we used to be as enemies to him, we are now made his brothers and sisters. We are now made a part of his family. And he invites us into this good news, right? this all-consuming love that is powerful enough to make who we were, former enemies, now his friends. And so, um, you know, as, as Josie even reminded us a little bit during Lent, we've asked uh, our congregation to pick five people uh, to pray for, five people that we're close to who don't know uh, the gospel of Jesus, who don't believe um, and, and are not Christians. Um, and, and I try not to give too much homework, uh, but I have one small thing to add to that list. Uh, this week and throughout Lent, I want for us to think of one person that we might could classify as an enemy. Maybe, you know, we don't often want to think in terms of enemies, so maybe that isn't the natural category for you. Perhaps it's more someone who has been awful to you or mean to you, right? Um, someone who's wronged you. And, and specifically, someone who has not asked for forgiveness, right? I want you to pray for their benefit. To pray that the Lord blesses them. Um, you don't have to be reconciled to them. I'm not uh, telling you to go and, and to be reconciled to someone who may be abusing you. Um, I'm asking that you would pray that the Lord would make his face to shine upon them. And to be gracious to them. That is not an easy prayer. Depending upon who you're thinking of right now. It can only be done as we are reminded that the Lord has taken enemies like us and made us his friends. It can only be done in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it is into that light that I ask y'all to do this, to be reminded um, as we continually do each and every week, remind ourselves who we are. Um, Those who are undeserving of his grace yet have been given it. And so would you all pray with me as we close our time together. Father, we are, gracious, we are grateful of your grace uh, to us. Lord, that though um, we have exchanged your truth for a lie at times, though often um, maybe we, we don't often think quite as negative thoughts about Jesus as those we read about here, but perhaps we just prefer to walk on by and not even really think about him. Um, uh, Like many of the passers-by who know not what they are doing, who know not that they are walking by the creator of the universe, the one who has been crucified on our behalf. Father, may we look and may we see Jesus and may that change our hearts to make us those who might bless those who curse us. 
to make those, us those who, who, uh, who have been declared your brothers and sisters by faith in Christ. And we pray all of this in his name, by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm-hmm.